Well, good morning and a very warm welcome to our service today. You know, the story is told of a Baptist minister, not Tim or Michael, I hasten to add, who was conducting a wedding ceremony when he suddenly and inexplicably realized he could not remember the name of the groom standing in front of him. He could recall the names of all the groom's family, his parents, his siblings, even his second cousin. But the name of the groom himself was an utter blank. In something of a tiz, and whilst conducting the opening liturgy, the minister racked his memory, he checked through his notes, he even scanned around the church for some visual clue that would help him to remember the name of the groom, but to no avail. As he approached the point where he would have to address the young man directly by name, he was beginning to panic, but was suddenly inspired to ask a question that was guaranteed to elicit the answer that he needed. And so he went a little off piste from the order of service and asked the groom, in what name do you come here today for marriage? Well, the groom was somewhat startled by the unexpected departure from the script, but he took it all in his stride and he announced in a calm and confident voice to the assembled congregation, I come here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> The minister, of course, was no further forward, but it's my privilege to welcome you all here today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we celebrate this first Sunday of Advent and join together in worship, bringing him our praise, spending time together in prayer and listening to his word. So whether you're here today for the very first time or whether you've been coming for decades, whether you're here in person in the building or whether you're joining us online this morning, you are most welcome in our service of worship today, and we pray that God will bless you as we spend this time together. As this is the first Sunday of Advent, our service this morning focuses on the theme of hope, that certain hope that we have in Christ Jesus as we, we begin to prepare expectantly to celebrate his birth and coming into the world to grant us peace and salvation. I've taken our call to worship this morning from Psalm 139, and we'll return to this in a different format a bit later in the service. But for now, let's consider and reflect upon the words of the psalmist as we enter God's presence. Psalm 139 reads, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And so we respond in worship with two songs which we'll sing together. The first reflects perfectly that power and majesty of God as described in the psalm. King of kings, majesty, God of heaven, living in me. As always, I invite you to stand if you're able, but if you prefer to stay seated, then please do so. Let's join together as we worship God this morning. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we sing, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away. Mm-hmm. 
seated. Let's join together in prayer, shall we? Let's, let's bow our heads. Loving God, we thank you for this, your day. We thank you for this season of Advent when we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray that as we join together in this place or as we gather online today, you will help us to focus on you, remembering that the gift of Christ Emmanuel is our most treasured gift, not just for the Christmas season, but for the whole year through. Lord, we confess that in a season when every heart should be joyful and expectant and filled with wonder, many of us are struggling with the heaviness of life, wondering when bills will be paid or when pain will cease or good health return, when relationships will be mended or when rest will come. Lord, this Advent, will you make your message of hope, and peace and joy real in our hearts? We thank you for the gift of Jesus, our Emmanuel, the Word made flesh. We thank you that you've promised rest for the weary, victory for the battle-scarred, peace for the anxious, and acceptance for the broken-hearted, not just at Advent, but every day of the year. This day, 2,000 years after your birth, your name is still called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. We know that peace on earth can only come when our hearts find peace in you. You are still our hope. You are still our joy. You are still our peace. You are no longer a babe in the manger. You are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we celebrate you as Lord this Advent and always. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, we find the story of Jesus sending out his disciples on their challenging mission to share the Gospel and to make known his name and to try and help the disciples understand the sheer depth and magnitude of the Father's love and protection and of their limitless value in his eyes. Jesus assures them of some words. Are, two not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So with those thoughts in mind, I wonder if I could ask you what this is. And as I shared this recently with Deacon's meeting, I'll ask my fellow deacons to keep still. Any idea what that might be? No clues. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. If I tell you that it's associated with its first product in America in 1974 and in the UK in 1979, does that count? Any idea? No clues. Okay. You might recognize it today as this. Okay. It's the barcode. Believe it or not, it was back in October 1952 that Messrs. Uh, Messrs. Silver and Woodland were granted a patent for the world's first barcode. But it took 20 years for the technology, of course, for it to become a reality. But the success of the barcode is due to its near limitless capacity to generate fresh, unique 
coast, I'm told that a 13-digit barcode like this can create 10 trillion different configurations. Let's look at the next slide. So let's just put that into perspective what 10 trillion actually looks like. That's 10 with 12 noughts after it. That's an enormous number, isn't it? But let's come back to the barcode for a second. 10 trillion combinations of a barcode is enough to comfortably give an individual number to every person who has ever lived and still have several trillion options left over. Isn't that incredible? And yet, we live in a world and a culture that is shaped by what's been known today as identity politics and an endless desire, if you like, to classify and pigeonhole people according to gender, ethnicity, sexuality, class, religion, or politics. And these are not without significance, but equally none of them, nor any of them together, can comprehensively capture who we are as individuals. And that is captured in the, slide, in the, in the psalm that we read at the beginning of the service. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I sit, when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. And similarly, in remarks specifically intended to encourage their awareness of the Father's protective care, Jesus assures his disciples in Matthew that even the very hairs on their head are numbered. Heaven's barcode, you might say. Each of us is known and loved by God, intimately, personally, as a unique, never seen before, never to be seen again, individual. With our own abilities and vulnerabilities, our likes and our dislikes, our quirks and our foibles, deepest longings and darkest fears. So the next time we're about to scan and go in Sainsbury's, we might want to take a moment to quietly reflect on the fact that in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the world, we stand unique in the eyes of God. Distinctively known, distinctively understood, and distinctively loved. And that's the hope that we celebrate on this first Sunday of Advent. But also remember that the same is true of the people around us in the pew. So let's stand to sing again. Grace unmeasured, vast and free, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth. Let's stand together as we worship you.
Lila is going to come and light our first Advent candle of the, se- of the season. But as we do so, we're going to uh, begin with a responsive reading, which will be on the screen. And we will follow this theme through each of the Sundays leading up to Christmas. So if I say the words in yellow, if you would kindly respond in the words in white. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We are glad, whether we drove in or climbed up, whether we logged on or tuned in, we are glad to be here in this community, with this family. It is a place of joyful hope, of radical welcome. It is a place where together we can work in wondrous anticipation of the kingdom to come. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that God may teach us God's ways and that we may walk in God's paths. We light this candle as a sign of our hope, our joyous hope that we can be restored, our faith restored, our strength restored, our confidence restored, our joy restored as we watch and wait with all God's people for the promise to be fulfilled. Lila, come and light our candle. loving God and Saviour, in this advent of expectation, will you join us together in unity that our praise and worship might echo in these walls and through our lives. In this advent of expectation, join us together in mission that the hope within might be the song we sing and the melody of our lives. In this advent of expectation, join us together in service that the path we follow might lead us from a stable a glimpse of eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again a song that expresses the joy and the hope of Advent, the day all creation has longed for, when all of time has been spent and the Lord returns. Glorious light, see the dawn of salvation. And as we sing, uh, the children are going to leave for DRVK up in the sports hall. Let's stand together.
Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew 24, which as many will know is a very long chapter indeed. We're going to be reading selected verses. Matthew 24. (coughs) Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. 
But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Come now to our prayers of intercession. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray for our world, a world that is in a mess. Greed and corruption are commonplace. Truth is a rare commodity. And in so many parts of the world, Christians and other minorities find themselves the targets for hatred and persecution. The ongoing war in Ukraine is but one of the many areas where there is ongoing conflict and where restoration of peace and justice seem as far away as ever. We pray for the millions who are suffering, many on a scale that we can scarcely imagine. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be working in even the darkest places to bring about change and real hope for a better future. We pray for our own country and for those in positions of responsibility and leadership. Please give them wise judgment in decisions that have to be made. May those decisions help bring us together and not drive us apart. And may those who are suffering and fearing for the future be given cause in the coming days for renewed hope and encouragement. We pray for our church in these difficult times, for our ministers, Tim and Michael and their families, and for our diaconate and those doing their utmost to keep us united and connected following what has been an enforced and prolonged period of separation from each other and from the many normalities of life. Please guide the decisions that have to be made and the plans being considered for the future. Where we may feel led to disagree Please make any criticism constructive and helpful. And keep us ever mindful of the need to seek God's will at all times and in every situation. As we enter this season of Advent, may we do so with a sense of joy and anticipation. We particularly commit to you, dear Lord, our families and friends, 
and our church family. Please reveal yourself to those who do not yet know you, to the neighbors whom we see around us. When we meet our neighbors, please give us the right words to speak, and may our own words and lives be a testimony to your presence in our lives, and perhaps help lead others to want to know you too. May this time of Christmas illuminate our lives and the lives of those around us. Where there is fear, please bring reassurance. Where there is sadness, please bring joy. Where there is worry, please bring comfort. Most of all, dear Lord, we ask that the fear and worry that casts a long shadow over so many lives in these troubled times may give way to rising optimism and hope in the days that lie ahead. We offer these prayers to you in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to return briefly to the psalm that we began with as our call to worship at the start of the service, Psalm 139, but we're doing so this time in music, and we're going to watch a video of that psalm that has been set to music. It's a relatively new piece of choral music. It's entitled You Know Me, and it was composed just last year by an outstandingly talented young composer and pianist from Armenia called Christina Arakinian. The piece was written for and is performed by the Cambridge University Pembroke College Girls' Choir, and they are conducted by their equally brilliant young conductor, Anna Lapwood, who is Director of Music for the College and also an Associate Artist and Organist at the Royal Albert Hall. So if you hear the organ at the Royal Albert Hall, there's a good chance it's Anna that's playing it. But this is Psalm 139, it's set to music, and uh, I'm conscious of time, so after we've watched this, Julie will come and bring God's word to us.
muscle my way through this, um, but forgive me if I do. Beautiful piece of music, wasn't it? So we've focused our worship on celebrating the first coming of Jesus, which we're looking forward to celebrating in a few weeks' time. But the first Sunday of Advent is often used as an opportunity to remind ourselves, and at Tim's suggestion that I speak on this, of the sure and the certain hope of his second coming. His coming again, his return, the Perusia. And remind us that as surely as he came the first time, born as that baby in Bethlehem, lived, taught, died, rose again and ascended into heaven, as surely as that happened, and that's why we celebrate it, he is absolutely coming again. And it seems to me that uh, we might sing about it, and we did in the song this morning, um, but we don't really talk about it too much. And so really, in essence, the whole thing this morning is about understanding and being excited that Jesus is coming again. And it was a good reminder for me to get myself encouraged and motivated and better prepared for it whenever it might be. You see, we can easily lose perspective of the big picture. With everything that's going on and difficulties in the world, we can lose perspective of God's plan and his purposes. Personally, I just remember when I was in, uh, on mission in Brazil, uh, um, I remembered out of the blue that when I was eight, a teacher at my primary school had said to me, you'll be a missionary in South America one day. I'd forgotten all about it. And I just thought, yes, even all those years ago, um, God had plans and purposes for my life and knew all about it. But of course, he has plans and purposes for the church and the world. God has it all in hand. Even though we may struggle um, personally and um, with everything that's going on, he has it all in hand. There is a bigger picture. He knows the end from the beginning. And Jesus returning again is, as someone said, a hinge linking human history in this world with the life of the world to come. And the questions that we can ask ourselves as we consider this this morning, are we expectant? Are we ready? Do we even think about it? For some people, might, this might be even the first time that you've really heard about it or thought about it or considered it. Yet, for the early church, Jesus coming again was their hope and their longing. They expected it at any time. Maranatha was their cry. Come, Lord Jesus, come. They wanted him to come back. For 2,000 years onwards, up to today, people have wondered about the events of the end times and when and how Jesus will return. Tell us, the disciples asked Jesus in our passage that we had read after their master had predicted a future calamity in Jerusalem. Tell us, 
When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They were wanting, they were expecting, they wanted to know. And there have been various, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, various uh, words and controversies and, and about what, when and how this is going to happen. And the thinking about the end time events, words, of course, that we, we hear, the millennium, the thousand year reign mentioned in Revelation. We might have heard of the number 666, the number of the beast, the devil, the antichrist, evil, the tribulation, a time of terrible, terrible times and difficulties, and the rapture. For those of us who've been uh, Christians for a long time in the 1970s and 80s, um, end time speculations were a hot topic. You don't hear so much now. How Lindsay's late great planet Earth sparked this off. And in the 90s, there was a series of books, some of you may have read them, Left Behind by Tim LaHaye, based on one, one end time theory, and that is the rapture of the church. But I would say that is only one interpretation of that passage in Thessalonians, and there are many Bible-believing Christians uh, who don't see the return of Jesus as two separate events, as described in the book. N.T. Wright, the famed author and theologian that we often quote, he says this, Paul's mixed metaphors of trumpets blowing and the living being snatched into heaven to meet the Lord are not to be understood as literal truth, as the left-behind theory suggests but as vivid and biblically elusive description of the great transformation of the present world of which he speaks elsewhere. So there are different opinions. There are many sincerely held theories about the return of Jesus and how it will happen. I'm sure that we will even here have um, some of the strongly held opinions. And these can sometimes lead to controversy and division, and we can tie ourselves up in theological knots. Future things are difficult for us to understand, and Jesus knew that. Even before his death and resurrection, it was the same. The disciples didn't understand that. They couldn't understand. And at the Last Supper, Jesus predicted what would happen, and he said in John 13, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And in the passage that was read to us, uh, we, we heard, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And he says, verse 25, see, I have told you ahead of time. He wanted them to be prepared. Now, there isn't uh, a lot of time, obviously, uh, in this morning to go into great detail about the different views that there are. But I do appreciate that there are those who feel strongly about one uh, view or another. And I found it really helpful um, to read this pamphlet, actually. It's four views of the end times. And he lists scholars and theologians supporting each of the views and the scripture verses they base their views on. 
And actually the differences are mainly a matter of interpreting, interpreting the timing of the events in the prophetic calendar. And there is room for inter- freedom of interpretation. So I think it's really important that we are gracious to those of us who hold different views on this topic. And at the risk of tying us up into theological knots, perhaps, um, I would like to just, I would like us just to look at those four different views before we move on to see how it affects us today. So, if we can have this slide up, please. Amillennialism. So, you may switch off some of you with this, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of making the point that he makes. There will be amillennialists think that there will be no physical millennium thousand years. The millennium is actually the present spiritual reign of Jesus with his people. Jesus may return to earth at any time and the tribulation occurs wherever Christians are persecuted or wars or disasters happen. Scripture verses to back that up but the Protestant reformers Martin Luther, Calvin and evangelical theologians such as Jay Packer adhere to that view. The next view, bear with me, post-millennialism. Those people say they have the view that Jesus will return to earth after, post, the millennium, the thousand years, when the overwhelming majority of people throughout the world embrace the gospel. And the great tribulation occurred already either in the first century or it will be a brief time of persecution immediately preceding the thousand years reign. And the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards or R.C. Sproul adhere to that. Third one, dispensational premillennialism. God will rapture Christians from the earth before or midway into the seven-year Great Tribulation. Jesus will return to earth after the Great Tribulation, but before the thousand years millennium described in Revelation 20. Hal Lindsay, Charles Stanley, Tim LaHaye. Some of you, you you won't know these, but some others will. And then finally, historical pre-millennialism. Jesus will return to earth after a time of tribulation, but before, pre, the millennium described in Revelation 20. Christians are going to remain on the earth through the tribulation. This tribulation may be a short, intense time of persecution, that will occur near the end time or a long time period which has occurred throughout church history. And early church fathers, Irenaeus, modern supporters such as George B. Murray and George Ladd are here for that. So I just want, I know it's hard going, but with those four, I just wanted to say that there are theologians and uh, scholars who adhere to different opinions uh, on on this. And I would want to perhaps add another um, that some might prefer, and that is pan-millennialism. And that is, it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> but, so that was hard going, but the views share some key points. And this is what I want us to understand. Jesus will come again for those who love him. Jesus calls his followers to be ready all the time. 
and no one knows the day or the hour. All those four would um, adhere and, and obviously say that. So I expect some of you were thinking, good gracious, this is all very confusing and can't begin to understand it or don't want to perhaps. But the key thing I want us to understand this morning is that it will happen. Jesus is coming again. He will return. The Jesus we worship and are preparing to celebrate the birth of will return. For the Christian, someone said, the return of Christ is not a riddle to be solved or a code to be broken, but a day to be anticipated. There's something to get excited about. So let's remind ourselves of the facts, what we can be clear about, and then more importantly, most importantly, uh, how it can encourage us today, how it can encourage our faith today, and help us keep our focus on Jesus. So a few facts, the facts of his return. Again, and this is, I mean, I'm saying this over and over again, but it's so important that we really grasp it as certain as he came the first time. So he will come again. And he says here in John, I'm going away, I'll come again, basically. 318 times in the New Testament. 318 times in 210 chapters. Every book of the New Testament except 2 and 3 John and Philemon mentions this. And this alone indicates how important it is. And I do think we've lost sight of it uh, at times. There are references in the Old Testament, particularly in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, he says in Daniel, um, in my vision at night, I looked before me, there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. Jesus refers to this in the passage that we read, uh, verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The nature of his return. So what the nature? It will be personal. We know this. I will come back, Jesus said. In Revelation 22, he said, Behold, I am coming soon. Same person as ascended. I mean, this might seem obvious, but he is coming back. It will be literal. He will come in the same way. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. After he ascended, the two angels said, This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. It will be visible, public. 1 John 3. We shall see him as he is. There'll be many eyewitnesses. This isn't a secret thing. Revelation 1, chapter 7 says, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see, even those who pierced him. You wonder how everyone's going to see, but maybe with the internet and everything, I mean, years ago, we wouldn't have understood that, but everyone will know it's going to happen. It will be sudden. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 
27, for as lightning that comes from the east, we read. And 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. It will be unexpected, Matthew 24, 42 says, you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It will be glorious, verse 34, coming on the clouds with power and glory. The purpose of his return, several things we'll mention too, to complete the work of redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. Believers will be raised from the dead and receive new bodies which will be suited to their new environment. Time to wrap it up. And this is the bit we don't like, but this is what the Bible says. To execute judgment. Because in 3 we, we say he will come to judge the living and the dead. And we don't like this. It's really hard to understand. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be this is harsh. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. It's harsh. But that is the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus fulfills his own promises. He can't deny himself. He said he's coming again. He said these things. And it confirms the truth of Scripture. At nearly every book, especially in the New Testament, as we've seen, makes reference to it. And the time of his return, no one knows. No one knows. Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows. There's been much speculation. And sometimes, the very day of his return, you might remember over the years, people going up to on mountains and saying it's going to happen, and they're all standing up there waiting, giving a date, and of course, of course it hasn't happened. No one knows. Could be today. It could be. It does stand in relationship to certain events in history. Matthew 24, verse 6, but we read there, was, there will be signs, and we're to interpret them. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. We've certainly seen those, haven't we? We don't know. We don't know when he's coming again. So we are to be alert. Matthew 13 says, Be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Be on your guard. Revelation 3, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have in order that no one may take your crown. So then, how can it encourage us and build our faith today? The fact, as we've heard over and over again, 
remains. He will come again. And we have to keep that in focus. It's not something to be shelved. But how does it relate to my life and conduct now? If, if we believe he's coming, then we've got to act like he will. Firstly, it should encourage us to holy living. 1 John 2 says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If he, I mean, what will you be doing? What will I be doing when he comes again? Will we be able to look him in the eye? It should motivate us to mission. George Muller, the evangelist and director of that amazing Bristol orphanage where so many miracles happened, he said this, From my inmost soul, I was stirred up to feel compassion for perishing sinners and for the slumbering world lying in the evil, in the wicked one. Ought I not to do all I can to win souls for the sleeping church? He said, I am determined to go from place to place to preach the gospel and arouse the church to look up and wait for the second advent of our Lord in heaven. He was so fired up about it. God used that man so amazingly. And that's what he said. And then, thirdly, it should stir us up to serve faithfully using the gifts that he has given us. The other Sunday, Tim was talking, I think it was Tim talking about using the gifts. And we are to use, we are to do everything we can to help the church and the, and the world around us be prepared. We have to serve God as best we can in all the different ways and gifts that he has given to us. And then it encourages us to be prepared. And Dr. Campbell Morgan, the British evangelist preacher and teacher, he said this. I mean, it's so... They, they really, really uh, understood this. He said, to me... The second coming is the perpetual light on the past which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head on the pillow without thinking that before I awake, the final day may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking that he may interrupt it and begin his work. Always waiting, always expecting, always praying for. And finally, it should give us hope. It does give us hope. Talked about hope this morning, haven't we? It's something to look forward to. The knowledge that he's coming again and he's going to sort everything out is meant to sustain us in the tough times and strengthen us. He's got it all in hand. It's not all going down the chute going down the pan. He's got it all in focus. And we can look forward to the fact that he is coming again. And in conclusion then, there can be four attitudes, I think, to talking about this. One, hostility. I can't believe this. That's not going to happen. Apathy. Whatever. Fear. This is 
scary stuff. This is going to give me nightmares. Or expectancy and hope and joy. So surely we are to be expectant. We're to long for. We're to understand. We're to be on the lookout for the return of Jesus because it will happen. And this will build our faith and keep us spiritually alert. Finally, Paul says confidently, Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy um, chapter 4, verse 8, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And I would ask you, do you long for his return? And would you be ready if he came today? Let's pray. Father, this is a truth which we often neglect or shelve, put to one side. But the day is getting ever nearer. The early church expected, expected it soon, but we are in this in-between time between the first coming and the second coming. And it's ever near. It could be any day. It's exciting. Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to be prepared. Help us not to um, be doing things that we shouldn't do. Lord, help us to live in a holy way that we wouldn't be ashamed when you come for us. Lord, we thank you for this glorious, glorious truth. We thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you've got it all in hand. We look forward to this. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come whenever, whenever you're ready. day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Christ. Let's stand.
verses from Revelation. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And all the people of God said, Amen. If anybody would like prayer, because you're scared or apathetic or whatever, um, people will be over there to pray for you.